This podcast is brought to you by Nesta, the UK's innovation foundation, and was recorded at FutureFest, our weekend festival of ideas. From the Gulf to South Africa and around the world, this is the FutureFest podcast. I'm Emily Elias, and we are pondering what exactly does futurism mean? On this episode, artist Sofia Almeria accidentally creates a movement. If you haven't been to the Gulf, you need to know that it's a ridiculous place of unique possibility. Lecturer and artist Tegan Bristow breaks down Afrofuturism, and musician Spock Mathambo tries to figure out the future sound of South Africa. For the most part, movements are different because of the context that they exist in. So let's start this podcast with a phrase. Gulf Futurism. Artist Sofia Almeria didn't mean to create it, but somehow, through the rapid reach of the internet, Gulf Futurism became a thing. Now she's trying to figure out the definition of the two words that she put together. And most people seem to assume what I was speaking about back when I first started floating this around in the internet was this sort of pretty juggernaut of master planning and the delusions of utopic grandeur that the Gulf has become quite famous for on the international stage. There's a surface level Gulf that is only visible to the quippy New York Times journalist who sashay in and out. But as with all collective visions of utopia, an emergent dystopia lies in direct parallel just out of sight. Imagine Vera Lynn's tender voice with mile-high curls of atomic hellfire. That's what I think of when I think about Gulf futurism. It's this sort of strange mix of calm mall escalators and bossa nova music. It's cozy catastrophe, basically. But except the 21 kiloton bomb is of an extinction crisis with burning fossil fuels as its direct cause. What's happening now is maybe our just comeuppance, a flashed scene too late as the chorus joins in over an already darkening sky. If you haven't been to the Gulf, you need to know that it's a ridiculous place of unique possibility. And I believe that the ley lines of our global fate crisscross it as tightly as the flight paths that transit through it. It's where a cartel kid from Medellin comes to landscape a queen's garden and ends up master planning the greening of a whole country. It's where a radical and dissident Sudanese novelist flees only to become director general of the Ministry of Information. It's where a Hollywood film director can be hired to quite literally create a national identity, right down to a new anthem and national holiday. At certain nodes in Dubai, one feels as if Chungking mansions in Hong Kong or Rue Faubourg Saint-Denis in Paris had folded out into entire cities of transience and trade. Where else might you go into a Yemeni restaurant and find a banquet table of Nigerian and Chinese businessmen eating mendi together? Where else will you hear a driver blasting bhangra from a Korean tour bus, which he just decanted into a Carluccio's? Where else might you go to an Iranian nightclub atop a 1970s hotel and be waited on by Ethiopian men in bow ties and dance on a stage with Omani drag queens? It's where unjust wars are launched but not battled. It's where a lineup of laborers are being fed to the machines of our metropoli. In these examples, it is Borgesian in its perfect ironies, wild juxtapositions, and Baroque bureaucracy. To most, its machinations are mysterious, cloaked behind an opaque curtain of cultural difference. And this is the reason that all most people see when they look is a cold, glimmering folly of nouveau riche hubris. But deep history is a living memory for my grandmother. She grew up living a lifestyle that stretched back unchanged for millennia. And a few years ago, I was driving on a desert road, so studded with the corpses of land cruisers, they looked like mileposts. This particular combination of a straight road slick with sand and nihilistic youths hammering down on the horizon result in an atrocity exhibition 
So my grandmother, my father and I, we were all on our way to this place called Hungaria to sell some goats, and we got to talking about the old times. And this was a time in which my grandmother and her sister made pests of themselves to the Saudi Aramco apparatus that would, apparatuses, apparatusi, apparatus, <laughs> that were displacing them from their land. They loitered around the service roads to derricks, dumpster diving for paper and clothing, waiting for trucks to rumble through and throw them treats. This is how she tasted her first orange and how she got her first ride in a motorized vehicle. Later, she and her sister got into trouble laying a booby trap on the new railroad that was being built. They stuck this metal thing on the train track and it destroyed the front of the train and the engineer came out throwing rocks at them. And this and other innocent acts of mischief these days would be labeled terrorism by these kinds of corporations. And that is exactly why people like my family were displaced from the land underneath which was the oil. So we were on this trip and I asked my grandmother and my father what they thought the first time they ever saw an oil flare. And my father, who is a very funny guy, turned to me with his sunglasses and he goes, I thought it was the future. And my grandmother, who was sort of grumbling and upset in the back seat, chimed in and she said, the first time I saw it, I thought it was hell. Now moving from Gulf futurism to Afrofuturism. Lecturer and artist Tegan Bristow from the Witt School of Arts in Johannesburg has been looking at what Afrofuturism is and how the North American concept relates to Africa. I have really big problems with the term Afrofuturism. The reason we have problems with the term Afrofuturism is because it's very reductive. And maybe this is where I'm having problems with the notion of futurism itself. So anything that comes out of Africa that is slightly aesthetic and kind of cool and has a kind of technological bent is assigned the title Afrofuturism without any real kind of critical engagement about where it is that stuff is coming from and why it's coming from Africa. Um, and Afrofuturism itself as a term is in fact from an African-American um, genealogy. It's an African-American movement that started in the 1970s from a, a music perspective and then later on in the 80s um, from a literature and speculative fiction perspective. Um, I think Afrofuturism is a term that belongs to the West. I don't think it's a term that belongs, actually I know that it's not a term that belongs to Africa. It's been assigned to Africa, to any practice that comes out of Africa, and it's therefore really, really reductive. Um, I'd say that what is happening in Africa is a resistance against this notion of Afrofuturism and a definition for Africa and what that is that they're trying to do within with technology and with media as a critical engagement. And it's important for us that when futuristic type critical or speculative type critical engagements come out of Africa that talk to technological things, that it's not viewed through the lens of Afrofuturism, that it's viewed through African futures and African myth mythologies and African criticality of a globalized power, which is pretty much where media exists. Um, we're constantly being given a view of ourselves through the lens of global media, and that view is wrong most of the time. So there's an opportunity for Africans within technological practice to make themselves present and to make themselves um, present in media and also to identify themselves as African um, with very particular African things that happen 
and African ways of thinking about knowledge, African ways of thinking about culture, which is very, very different from Afrofuturism. One person making himself present is musician and filmmaker Spoak Mathambo. In his documentary, The Future Sounds of Mansi, Spoak explores the past and future of electronic music in South African pop culture. On top of that, his music as a solo artist and with the South African ensemble Phantasma combines merging new local sounds and dance. Global curator Jess Bland caught up with Spoak at Futurefest to talk about the changing global music scene. I think what's interesting now is that um, the barriers of space and geography don't matter so much. I mean, the internet links a lot, so London electronic music has influenced South African electronic music, and South African electronic music has influenced London electronic music in the last, you know, 10 years, I could say definitely, with a lot of specific examples. But for the most part, movements are different because of the context that they exist in. really clear example is a record label Hyperdub did a, did a release with a group called LV and the one dude from LV is kind of was born in Durban so he came and I introduced him to a bunch of people then he met another, a lot of other players and the whole album is this kind of you know mixture of what's at the forefront of South African electronic music culture and what's at the forefront of electronic music culture here and yeah, the, the bounce back has been really important because it's influenced people on both sides. In London, you know, grime music has been around for a while. It was certainly a scene a few years ago. Did that ever take off in, in Joburg or in your, the music scene you know from South Africa? Context makes things um, very, very different. What people, you know get close to and what people don't get close to. It differs because of the energy of the different places and the histories, but um, I'm, I'm excited that I think uh, a lot of, there's a lot of commonality with dance music that people appreciate on both sides. And some things don't translate, but I mean, we've got huge, you know, old um, rock and indie rock and punk movements that are heavily influenced by UK stuff. Yeah, we're excited to be the generation of electronic musicians answering that and continuing the dialogue and not constantly just um, being a content absorber, communicating and bouncing back the other way. A lot of big labels come to Africa and say the talent is here but it's quite unclear on how we can gain revenue from it, um, what the legal framework is and something that continues to hold it back is um, real piracy. Piracy is just generally rife, be it music, pornography or film. All over the streets of Johannesburg you'll see CDs and DVDs. While file sharing is a natural extension of wanting to communicate things that we love, in the past you'd, you'd ask people and say, um, do you know the song? You know, one nation under a groove. And if they can hear what you're kind of singing, that would transfer how, how much, how good it is or how much they like it and make you believe 
But today the, the behavior has evolved to being simply, you know, um, have you heard you know, this latest song? I can WhatsApp it to you or I can give it to you on a memory stick really quickly. It's in our DNA to want to communicate the things that we enjoy and love. And in this uh, technology and innovation age, the file sharing has become an extension of that communication of, you know, love. This is the dodgy aspect of ownership, but I think it was interesting when I spoke to a producer called Tulo de Song, and he, his take on it was he preferred to have his sounds kind of open source because he understands his production process and he understands his communication and what he's trying to say in his music. But if other people want to take that to communicate other things, he's open to that. And I think that's really a kind of progressive way of thinking about it. Music piracy has also helped in shaping the popularity of a lot of genres of music in South Africa. I remember when um, Fruity, not just music piracy, but software piracy in particular. I remember when Fruity Loops first came out kind of in the early 2000s and um, the early noughts and CD writers were the popular means of transferring information at the time and a lot of people would just pass those discs around neighborhood and a few months later as soon as Fruity Loops came, a style called Skupu Sapitori, which translates to like the drum of Pretoria, started becoming um, quite ubiquitous. And it was, it, it really hypnotized people. It was when South African house music was moving from compiling international songs to the first time creating. And so some of it is really like uh, sketchy or dodgy, but, but it was the first step to being the huge scene that it is now. And a huge part of that was due to those versions of Fruity Loops point, you know, point one. The, the now electronic, now vibrant scene owes a lot to these pirated copies of Automix, Virtual DJ, Cubase, and Acid. There's a website in South Africa called Kasi uh, MP3, which translates to Township MP3. It's a music startup which has its pulse really firmly on the South African electronic music scene. It's a portal where artists can upload their work. Kasi MP3 is kind of helping artists, independent artists, earn royalties through, but the music is up for um, free download. They use a freemium business model where songs are given to consumers for free and in return they make the revenue from the ad space that's sold. They're facing a lot of aggressive um, backlash from the strong industry players because um, the scene is gravitating towards that and the stringent way in, in that the old gatekeepers wouldn't move is making them almost obsolete. Um, they're trying to make the music available to fans, music that wouldn't be available through iTunes um, because artists don't have distribution, and, um, but also making sure that the artists are paid royalties.
You talked today um, a little bit about music sharing in South Africa and that's kind of interesting because I then tried to tweet the website you talked about and it wouldn't let me tweet it. Obviously there's some copyright legislation issue going on. Um, so it'd be just good to see, you know, in, in the, in the, if you had to imagine um, a future maybe 10 years from now of the electronic music scene in South Africa, um, how would music be shared then? What might be the next iteration of the, these websites? What's most interesting for me is for people to be able to um, actualize their potential and uh, realize whatever dreams they have. Um, be they musical or educational, whatever. Um, the file sharing right now has meant that someone with no industry clout, you know, with no big roller decks of important phone numbers, can get up and have their music played in a wide variety of places. And there's been some horrible examples where files go up and they're misnamed, and so the wrong person gets all the credit, gets all the radio play, gets all the gigs that come from it. But the other side is really. Um, rags to riches stories of you know street kids who've just come up and end up being international phenomenons which is um, really exciting I mean there's a lot of great there's a big sense of autonomy in that which we always find exciting I, I missed that whole part of the music industry before I came up in this uh, kind of landscape mm -hmm. so it's not I don't see the loss that other people lose for me it's just an exciting part of the, the cultural you know atmosphere If you want to experience Spilek Mathambo and Phantasma, go buy their album Free Love on Soundway Records. And keep your eyes peeled for screenings of his documentary, Future Sounds of Nazi. And that is it for this episode of the Feature Fest podcast. This podcast featured music by Spoke Mathambo, Phantasma, and Broke for Free. And a special thanks to the British Council. Feature Fest is brought to you by Nesta, the independent innovation charity with a mission to help people and organizations bring great ideas to life. To join the conversation, go to the website nesta.org.uk where you will find videos from Feature Fest. And if you are lucky, there may be some clues of what's happening for the next Future Fest, the future Future Fest, if you will. We'll be back next time as we explore the ones and zeros that make up the economy. But until then, I'm Emily Elias. Goodbye.